You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. We want to take a look at some scriptures, so let's just jump right on into this, and let's go to Matthew chapter 16. We're beginning a new series this week called The Truth About Suffering, and you're going to find out why we went into this, but let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, and uh, this is Jesus. He came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, let me just kind of lay a little background for you. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is a part of Israel that's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So what you, I won't get into all the details about what Jesus was saying here at this particular point in time, but I will say this, it was very important, it was important enough for he and his disciples to take off and to walk 25 miles to get to this one point so Jesus could make a statement. And so Jesus must have felt like it was pretty important. And uh, so this place called Caesarea Philippi was a, a village, again, that was in the northern part of Israel. It was at the base of Mount Hermon. And uh, it was an extremely uh, dark place in the sense of there was a lot of pagan and idol worship that happened right here. And there was literally a place in the side of the cliff that was a cave and a spring came out of that cave and there was a, a little body of water that gathered outside of this particular cave and the, the people, uh, because of being affected by um, the idolatrous culture of the Romans and the Greeks and so forth, they worshiped the God of Pan right here at this particular point. So Jesus takes his disciples to this village away from where they were accustomed to ministry to this one point, to this cave where, where the people worshipped uh, the, the idol of Pan. And this cave, because of the depth of the cave and that uh, because there were uh, sulfur releases, gases that came out of this particular cave, it smelled really bad. And so the people called it the gates of hell because they felt like it was a place that led them to the underworld so that they could worship and satisfy the gods who were responsible for the underworld and not have to go there. So that all being said, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. So he's standing there at this cave and he turns to his disciples and he asks them saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so they said, so some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, and notice this, I will also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and notice the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when you understand a little bit more of what was going on in context, you kind of understand why Jesus brought them to this point. And so notice the question that he asked the disciples was, who are people saying that I am? And of course, they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah. And so Jesus kind of flips the script on them and he turns and he says, but who do you say that I am? And of course, we know Peter received revelation by the Spirit of God and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus responds he said, You're, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, here's something that I want you to understand and I want you to realize. Jesus was in no way, shape, or form indicating or saying that Peter was the rock that the church would be founded on. Jesus would never trust or found his church on human flesh. Jesus founded his church on himself and what 
he was going to accomplish. But I want you to understand the point of what he was bringing them to was this. I want to know who you in your heart believe that I am. And so what I want you to see is this, that Jesus was bringing the disciples to a point so he could find out what did they or who did they perceive that God is. And you need to understand something, that, that who you perceive God to be determines everything about your Christian life. And even as born-again believers, we can have a wrong perception of who God is. Maybe you grew up in a religious environment that painted a picture of God as, you know, in your image of God as he's some mean old man that lives up in heaven with a long beard and he's waiting to be mad at everybody he can. He's just grumpy. You know, he's like that neighbor that lived down the street that would yell at you and tell, tell you to get out of his yard and all that kind of thing. And that's, so that's a lot of people's perception of who God is. But I want you to understand something, and if you're taking notes, write this down, please, and that is this, to the degree that you have a clear revelation, everybody say revelation, of who God is, your life will be built in God and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. So what I want you to see is, is that if you have a clear revelation understanding of who God is, the gates of hell are going to have a hard time prevailing against you. That ought to be good news for each and every one of us. And so as we dive into this, we want to look at what is it that clouds or, or blocks or, or taints, if you will, people's perception of who God is. Well, most people, particularly uh, people that aren't, aren't, don't have a relationship with God, that aren't born again, they base their understanding of who God is based on what they see going on in the world. How many of you can, you know, gather the world is in a mess right now? And, you know, always has been. And, and uh, I can just tell you this, outside of Jesus, it's not going to get any better. All right? So you need to understand that. And so what a lot of people do is that they base their perception of God on one thing, and that is this, human suffering. They look around the world, they see famine, they see destruction, they see wars, they see small children dying of starvation, they see all these horrible things, disease ravaging large groups of people, they see all these things happening, and they base their perception and their understanding of who God is based on what they see happening in humanity. Many atheists and agnostics would be just very open with you and tell you these things. I, I, I saw an article by a man who proclaims to be an atheist, and he said this. His name is Sam Harris, and he said this in his article, when someone like myself points out the rather obvious and compelling evidence that God is cruel and unjust because he visits suffering on innocent people of a scope and a scale that would embarrass the most ambitious psychopath. God is mysterious. He goes on to say this, either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes, he doesn't care to, or he just doesn't exist. God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. Take your pick and choose wisely. Now, I can't imagine, it's hard for me to wrap my brain having a perception of God that way. And, and, you know, at least if you're born again, maybe you have moved past this, but I would say in a lot of people's hearts, there is a question mark where human suffering is concerned. And how does God deal with this? What is his part in human suffering? Why, why doesn't he stop human suffering. You know, listen, all you have to do is, as I've made mention to you before, get in your car, drive down to uh, the Levine Children's Hospital, and it will break your heart when you see small children that are struggling with diseases and many of them dying from these diseases. And a lot of people would stand up and say, where is God in the middle of all of that? And, uh, you know, a lot of Christians would ask that same question. Where is God? What does God have to do with human suffering. And, 
You know, even if you've moved past the question that um, human suffering is caused by God, when we go through situations, very often our question will be, why? Why does this happen? You know, the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do these things happen? Where is God in the middle of all of this? And how do I handle suffering when it happens in my life? Well, we're going to talk about these things, and we're going to look at it. And if I was to ask you, and without cheating and looking at your handout, if, if you were to pick a, a person from the Bible that could be our poster child for human suffering, who would it be? Job. How many of you cheated and looked at your notes and you figured that out? Okay. No, most people take their understanding of human suffering from a biblical standpoint from the personality of Job and what we read in his book. And so we're going to take an in-depth study of the book of Job and we're going to begin to break it down so that you can have a clear understanding of human suffering, how you need to relate to human suffering, how you need to handle it, and what is God's position in human suffering. And we're going to examine these things up close, okay? So how many of you have ever read through the book of Job in its entirety? Okay, all right, very good. Uh, I challenge you, and we're going to look at a ton of scriptures from the book of Job throughout this series, but I challenge you, take some time to read the book of Job for yourself, all right? Now, I'm going to say two things. Number one, as you read the book of Job, read it for yourself and forget about everything you've heard about Job. And then, as we teach on this, when I present to you facts and principles about human suffering, Study those out for yourself. Don't ever, ever, ever take what I say just because I said it and I'm, I'm the pastor. Just take what I say from the Word of God and study it out for yourself, okay? Because I endeavor to do the best that I can in presenting the truth to you from the Word of God, but it's the truth that you have heard and you know for yourself that is going to set you free. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 32. He didn't say it's the truth that pastor knows, it's the truth that your mom and them know, it's the truth that your neighbor knows. No, it's the truth that you know that you have a relationship with that's going to set you free. Can I get an amen? All right, so now let's look at this. If you're taking notes, I want to give you some helpful Bible interpretation tips. Now, these are things, these are just a handful of things that, that um, and there's many more, but just a few things that I want to give to you. So, as you're reading and studying the Word of God, you can get these tips, and it will help you to be able to clarify and understand the Scriptures for yourself. So, here's number one, okay, helpful Bible interpretation tips. Number one, you must always be aware of who is doing the talking and how credible they are as a source of information. You've got to be aware. You've got to look at some context when you're studying scriptures. You know, we, uh, we have a tendency, you know, we claim to be word people, and we are. But a lot of times, truth if we tell the truth about it, like I heard Brother Jerry Savelle say, we're not word people, we're favorite word people. In other words, we have our little pet scriptures that we take but oftentimes we take those, those scriptures and we don't look at them in context as far as who, is being, who said it, who did the talking, and so forth. So when you're studying the Word of God, you literally need to pay attention to who the source of the information is, okay? Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound like a, a riddle almost, but, but follow with me and pay attention, okay? The Bible is not literally true in the sense that every statement in the Bible is a statement of truth. Now, we believe the Word of God is the truth. Jesus said so. But you need to understand every statement in the Bible is not a true statement. Okay? Now, some of y'all looking at me like I just fell off the truck. All right? Again, you have to consider the source, and I'll talk more about this in just a second. 
Here's number two, next helpful hint. Some things are truly stated in the Bible, as I just said, but they are not statements of truth, okay? In other words, let me give you a couple of examples. Do you remember in Jesus' ministry, they called him many things. One of them was they called him a blasphemer. They, they said things like he cast out demons by the power of the devil, okay? Now, these are religious leaders, by the way, that are saying this, people that ought to know better, okay? And, uh, you know, they said things like he lost his mind, all these types of things. Now, it is true that those statements are in the Bible, but let me ask you, are those true statements? No, they are not. Of course they're not, okay? How about, uh, you know, the Scripture says that Lucifer, in his fall, declared, I'm going to exalt my throne above the heavens. Now, that's a true statement in the, sta in the fact that he said that, but I can tell you this, that ain't never going to happen. Thank God, okay? So what you have to do when you're studying the scriptures is you have to look at who said it, and then you have to look at, is it a statement of truth? It might be truly stated in the Bible, but it might not be a statement of truth, all right? Now, as we study the book of Job, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you know Job, uh, a large portion of the book is a discourse between Job and three friends of his that we'll talk about more later that showed up to encourage Job, all right? Now, if you read through the 30-some-odd chapters of these guys going back and forth with each other, you will find out, and we'll talk about this more in our study, that Job and his three friends were the most uncredible sources of information about God in the entire scriptures. And even God says that himself. Okay, so keep that in mind. Here's number three. As you're studying the scripture, understand this. God always has the best idea the first time around. God always has the best idea the first time around. In other words, you're never going to find God stopping one day and saying, you know what, I never thought about that. Okay? He's thought about it all. He knows it all. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. And when God establishes something, it is right forever. Okay? So he has the, the best idea the first time around. So when you establish a principle of truth in the Bible, you will see that it will remain, will remain true throughout the entire Bible. For instance, let me give you an example. There is a scripture in uh, Genesis that talks about, it's, and actually it's in there twice, but it says, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed, time, and harvest. So God establishes that principle in the book of Genesis, both in a natural sense and in a spiritual sense. Well, we see that principle bearing out all the way through the scriptures, all the way into the New Testament to where even in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul wrote and said this, do not be deceived, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So it's a principle that was established in the beginning and it carries out throughout all of, actually all of eternity, but definitely throughout the entire Bible. Why? Because God had the best idea the first time around. All right? Now here's number four, and that is this. You cannot use a minor revelation from the Bible to interpret a major revelation from the Bible. Now, I'm going to explain this, but let me repeat that. You cannot use a minor revelation from the Bible to interpret a major revelation, okay? Now, what we do very often, in, especially nowadays in the church age and, and uh, with our understanding of the Bible, is very often we'll interpret the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. In other words, we will try and understand things from the New Testament by reading the Old Testament. 
And that was not God's intention because the New Testament is a greater revelation of the Old Testament. All right? Let me, let me give you an example to help you understand. How many of you understand that in the Old Testament, there were images, foreshadowing, prophecies, all, de- all kinds of declarations made about the Lord Jesus and what would happen when he comes to the earth as the Messiah. Do you, you understand that, right? Well, how many of you know in the New Testament, beginning in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he showed up, okay? So what we see in the four Gospels and the New Testament is a fulfillment of what we see in the Old Testament. So therefore, the revelation that comes to pass in the New Testament is greater than the revelation that we see come to pass in the Old Testament, all right? Are you tracking with me? Okay, so... Uh, let me give you this. Write this down, please. When you interpret the Scripture, you always use the greatest light that you have to bring light on that particular subject. So what I mean by that is, again, if we see clarity in the New Testament on something that was stated in the Old Testament, then you go with what was stated in the New Testament. Okay, do you understand me? All right, I'm not saying you discard the Old Testament, that we're to ignore the Old Testament. I'm not implying that at all. But what I am saying is when we receive clarification in the New Testament about a subject or something that was stated in the Old Testament, you go with what was stated in the New Testament. Okay, let me give you a a couple of examples, all right? Um, look at this scripture. And, and man, it, it, anybody ever attended a funeral before? Okay. How many of you have ever heard this scripture at a funeral before? And this is from Job chapter 1, verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, if you look at it in context, Job was referring to all the loss. He had just experienced in the loss of his family members, the loss of his household, everything. And and so he makes a statement and he says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And there are even modern day, I know of one in particular, modern day Christian song that has those lyrics in it as though it is an established doctrine. Okay? Okay. Now, I want to ask you a question. Just use your noggin for just a moment. Do you believe that it's possible that Jesus might have had a little better understanding of the character and nature of God than Job did? Do you think that's possible? Okay, because John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said this, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and to destroy. I have come, or we could say God has come, that they, us, you, might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. So this flies in the face of what Job said in 121. So who are we going to go with? I'm going to go with Jesus. Because I think Jesus was a little more of an authority on the character and nature of God than Job was. All right, so you understand how Jesus brings clarification to something that was stated in the Old Testament. So therefore, you don't build doctrine on something that is is, um, corrected or adjusted, if you will, by something Jesus said. You don't build doctrine on the Old Testament statement, but yet people do it all the time. I've heard it at dozens of funerals that I wasn't conducting I don't do that. You know, I, I had a, a, a service and, and the, the person who was facilitating the funeral asked me, he said, are you going to use the scripture, uh, basically this scripture and, uh, you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And I said, no, I don't plan on doing that uh, because I, I like to use some scriptures that are going to bring hope as in, you know, when we, lay this mortal down, 
it is not the end of the story, my prefacation, okay? Okay, but you know, but there are some times when people will stand at a funeral and will make a statement implying, well, the Lord took this blessed soul because he needed another angel in heaven. I've heard that too, okay? Not true. People do not become angels in heaven. Angels are angels. People are people. Two different things. Okay, am I helping anybody? <laughs> okay. All right. So we see that although that was stated in the Old Testament, it's not a statement of truth. We go with the revelation that Jesus gave us. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you something that isn't in your notes. This is absolutely free. Won't cost you anything, but it'll help you. Okay. Just remember this. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the Old, I'm going to repeat that. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. You got that? But in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. So saying that again, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. But in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. So again, what, what that little fancy saying brings to bear is the, the statement that I'm making to you is that you go with the greater revelation. So in the New Testament, very often we will find the explanation for things that we see in the Old Testament because what the Old Testament does is bring to light the fulfillment of those things in the Old Testament, okay? So are you with me? Okay, let me get over there to that. Here we go. There it is in case you need to see it in writing. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed, all right? Now, as we begin to get into this, all right, let's go over to James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Now, again, in the New Testament, we're going to see some specific instructions on what we are supposed to glean and receive from the book of Job. So let's look at James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. James said this, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, look at this, as an example of suffering and patience. Somebody tell me what patience means. Say it real loud, Kathy. Consistency. Patience doesn't mean put up with. Patience means you remain consistent when adversity comes. So what we're supposed to gain from the Old Testament prophets is, yes, we see how they suffered and the things that they experienced, but the biggest thing that we're supposed to gain is how they remain consistent. They didn't do this in the middle of their adversity, okay? Listen, you and I should be people of patience. In other words, we ought to be the most consistent people on the face of the planet, all right? So he says this, as an account of suffering and patience, indeed, we count them blessed who endure, Somebody who endures makes it all the way through to the other side, okay? So let's go on. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the intended by the Lord, the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So, James gives us what we are supposed to extract from the book of Job. His perseverance, meaning he, how he stuck with it. In the middle of everything that he faced, he stuck with it. He didn't quit. But the other thing is, the end intended by the Lord, for the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So, I'm going to just jump to the punchline of the whole book of Job and give you what was the intended end of the Lord. Let's look at, well, let me give you this first. Write this down. These verses tell us to be inspired by Job's patience, his perseverance, and his endurance, and the mercy of, and grace of the Lord that brought great deliverance. Everybody say deliverance. Okay. So, yes, we're supposed to 
be aware of what happened to Job, but we're supposed to look at his endurance, his patience, his consistency, and then we're supposed to focus on what God did in the end. Not the 36 chapters of going back and forth with his friends who debated about God, who knew nothing about God. Okay? All right? So, again, what we are to extract from the book of Job is his patience, his perseverance, and his endurance, and how the Lord brought a great deliverance. So, what, what is the example? What is it we're supposed to walk away from? That when you and I face tough times, and you will, somebody say, well, you, you, you ought to present it in a more positive way, okay? I am positive you're going to face tough times, okay? We all do. It's, it's just part of life. But the fact that, and the thing that we have to understand is we need to be patient, consistent, we need to endure, and we need to understand that if the Lord brought deliverance from Job for Job, how much more has God's children, as we've already celebrated, washed in the blood of Jesus, how much more will God bring to pass a great deliverance for us? Amen. If y'all aren't going to amen, I'm going to amen. All right? So let's look at this. And let's begin to dive in because I want to give you some context about this man named Job. So let's go to the very first verse of the book of Job and let's look at this. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So, pop quiz, how many children did he have? Ten. Seven sons and three daughters. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, in the known world at the time that this took place, you had the Uz, which was in the far eastern regions of the land of Canaan that we know about, the Middle East, and then you had the far western regions of Canaan where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived. Okay, so... Us was completely removed from all of that. Now, what I want you to see about Job is how, look at his property. Look at what's listed there again. His possessions were 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheeps, okay? 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Now, when, when it says female donkeys, what it implies is that there were, I, I, I guess a young donkey is called a fold too, but it implies that there were young donkeys, and if there were young donkeys, there had to have been male donkeys into, well, you know, okay, so with the female donkeys. All right, so in other words, there were a lot of animals, okay? So I want to I paint that picture very clear for you. So let's look at some background facts about the book of Job and about Job, all right? Here's number one, uh, and I'll say this, and then we'll look at the point. Job, the book of Job, is the oldest book in the Bible. The book of Job was actually recorded before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, who were written by Moses, if you were to look at a chronological Bible, meaning a Bible that is laid out in chronological order, date order, Job would be first, not Genesis. Why? Because it is the oldest book in the Bible. Job lived at the same time that Abraham and Isaac lived. He was just in a different part of world, the world at the same time. So, Look at number one, write this down, because Job is the oldest book in the Bible. He had no written record 
to learn about God. See, at least Abraham had a relationship with God. God walked with Abraham. God talked to Abraham. And and then later on, things were recorded about those conversations that we have in the book of Genesis and so forth. Job had none of that. So everything that he got about God, now we already read where he feared God. Now, every bit of information that he got about God was secondhand. In other words, he heard through the grapevine that there was a group of people way far away that knew about this God. And because he is a great God, according to them, I want to live right. That was the extent of his understanding and his relationship with God. And that's all he had to base his learning about God is what he heard other people say. Okay? All right, here's number two. Even though Job lived at about the same time that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, he was not part of God's chosen covenant family. Let me say it to you another way. Job was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. So he had no direct connection to God through any type of relationship. No type of covenant relationship, nothing. Okay, so he was outside of the covenant family. So again, this shaped his perception and his belief about God. You know, it would be like if you and I, and it's very difficult for this to happen in our country because we're such a churched nation in the sense of you would be hard-pressed to find somebody that knows nothing about God and Jesus in our country. You might have to go to the farthest reaches uh, and find some native peoples in Alaska or maybe some indigenous peoples out west, you know, that don't know much about God. But apparent, I mean, absolutely, here in the southeast and the Bible Belt and all of that, most everybody has some type of basic understanding of God. I mean, they went to Sunday school or something. Grandma Nim, somebody went. And so they, they probably have more revelation of God than Job did. Okay? So it, it would be, in essence, as if Job found everything, found out everything there was to know about God by reading a tabloid. That's basically the way it was. Okay, so am I painting the picture for you? Okay, all right. So now, let's talk about Job individually, his family and so forth. Number three, Job was an extremely wealthy man, even according to today's standards. Okay, now based on the livestock that we read in Job 1, verses 1 through 3, all those listings that we read Here are some basic estimates that people have made about how big his estate was. To accommodate those animals, it would have to require approximately half a million acres of land. That's a lot of land, folks, okay? Uh, The next thing is the total number of employees he would have to have to run that ranch would be anywhere from 100 to 500, depending on seasonal crops and things that were going on at the time. Listen, you don't hire 500 people to work for you if you broke. The man had some money, okay? He was very, very wealthy. Here's the the third thing. His total asset value in today's dollars could have been 1 billion or more with an annual income of 50, 40 to $50 million a year in today's money. So he did very well. Now, I did some research and some study uh, to try and find something to compare it to. In the United States, there's a handful of ranches that Job's estate would come close to. And um, in Texas in particular, there is one ranch called the King Ranch, which is 800, uh, a little more than 850,000 
acres. Let me give you some perspective. That is larger than the state of Rhode Island. One family owns all of that, okay? Now, and their ranch is divided up into four different sections separated by other property, but it's joined together in the sense that it's all under one name. Now, I did some research, and I found a ranch in Texas called the Wagner Ranch. Let me show you some stuff about the Wagner Ranch. The Wagner Ranch is 510,572 acres, which is equivalent to almost 800 square miles. It is the largest ranch in the United States that's under one fence. In other words, it's all contiguous property surrounded by one fence. I was, I was talking to Mickey earlier, and I was, I, you know, when I go down to Florida, sometimes I'll help out and I'll mow down there. I know what it's like to mow 5, 10, 15, 20 acres of, I cannot imagine and wrap my brain around a half a million acres of land that you have to keep up with. Now, in, in 2016, the, the W.T. Wagner Ranch in Texas was purchased for $725 million, okay? Incidentally, it was purchased by the, a daughter of Sam Walton and her husband. You know who? Walton, Walmart, okay? So, very wealthy family. That family, that couple also owns the uh, L.A., Ram, is it the Rams or Chargers? I get confused. Who's in Los Angeles now? NFL people, where are you? E, who's in, who's in Los Angeles now, the Chargers or Rams? Okay, well, they own one of those teams, okay? So these are very wealthy people, all right? Had to get some help. Y'all didn't help me. I had to, you know. So anyway, this ranch, the Wagner Ranch, specializes in raising horses, has 14,000 head of cattle on it, as well as 500 quarter horses on it. Now, these ranches, a lot of them are known for raising thoroughbreds who run in the Triple Crown, okay? The Wagner Ranch is one of them, all right? It also contains 160,000 acres of oil property. In other words, they have drilled for oil on this land and found oil and, uh, there's 26,000 acres of cultivated farmland that produces wheat, oats, and hay, okay? And they're on a year-round basis, 120 full-time people that work on this ranch. That's today. I mean, that's not Bible times. That's today on one piece of land. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this is to help you understand what Job had in his possession, now, when we study the book of Job, you will find out there are some things that happened to him. There are, unfortunately, some situations that happen where, if, and if you could put it in the context of this, he lost it all, every bit of it, okay? Now, here's another thing about the book of Job and about Job that I want you to understand, okay? His trial that we read about lasted only six to nine months. Now, I'm not minimizing what he went through. What he went through was horrible. But when you hear about it, and we very often preach about it, we preach as though it was a lifetime. No, it was, put it this way, if his trial started January 1st of this year, it would be over already. Okay? Most historians, most theologians believe that. To put it in context, Job lived, and it's not clear, but we do know that he lived more than 200 years and somewhere less than 250 years. So I'm 59, I just turned 59, and I've noticed, the, and perhaps you can identify, the older I have gotten, six months goes by like that. Anybody else can identify? Now, when you're a kid, six months is a long time especially when you're waiting for birthday or Christmas to roll around, okay? But nowadays, it's, and again, I am not diminishing what the man went through. I'm trying to help you put it in some context of what he endured and how long it took and, and all that he was facing, 
okay? Now, knowing all of that, knowing all the things about the Scripture that we need to understand and Bible interpretation, knowing some facts about Job's life and about the book of Job, I want you to understand that, yes, what Job experienced was horrible. It was absolutely something I would not want to endure myself. But as we've already read from the book of Job, that is not what we're supposed to focus on. What we're supposed to focus on is how he endured and then the intended end that the Lord brought about at the end of the book. What was that? Well, let's jump all the way ahead to, to one of the last verses in the book of Job. In Job 42 and verse 10, the scripture says this, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now you think about all those assets that he had, he lost that, and I'll just go ahead and tell you this, he did not lose it at the hand of God. God did not kill Job's family. God did not take Job's property. God did not destroy Job's life so that somehow, like the atheist said at the beginning, he could get some kind of thrill out of it. God doesn't operate that way. God is not like that. And so what we're going to learn from this and the study of the book of Job is that when you and I are facing difficulty, when you and I are facing hard times, if we will remain consistent on what the Word of God says about the character of God, who He is, and what He will do, I can promise you, based on the authority of God's Word, that you will come out on the other side of it far better than when you went in to the adversity. Now, I can't promise you twice, but I can promise you, you will come out better. That's just the character and the nature of God. God does not abuse his children and then leave us alone to perish. God doesn't do any of those types of things. And unfortunately, the church world has given God a bad name and therefore, we can't understand why people aren't running to have a relationship with God. It's because the devil has done his best to cloud people's perception of who God is and therefore hinder them wanting a relationship with this God. Our responsibility as believers is to help influence and shape people's understanding of who God is and that God is a good God, he's a merciful God, he's a gracious God who sent his son to die for each and every one of us so that even though we might endure things in this life, we can come out better off than when we went in. Amen. Amen. And so I love the fact that, yes, the Lord restored Job's losses. Anybody in here lost anything? Okay. Now, we'll, we're going to find out where Job missed it. We're going to find out how he got corrected, what he adjusted, and then what brought him to this point right here. We're also going to pull the veil back on some great misunderstanding because uh, the, the, there is a misunderstanding that the devil went and got permission from God to do everything that he did. He did not. Somebody said, but that's what the Bible says. No, that's the way you have interpreted what the Bible says. But that's not what the Bible says. Okay, are, are y'all excited about this? I know I am because here's the thing. I want you to have a clear revelation and understanding because again, I want to go back to the first point that we made in our notes, and that is this, to the degree that you have a clear revelation of who God is, it is, that is the limit of what the gates of hell will be able to prevail against you in. So when you gain an understanding of who God is, what his character is, and what he will do for you, the devil's days 
are numbered as far as him being able to bring destruction into your life. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word that we've heard today. I thank you for the truths of your word. And Father, I thank you that this word has fallen on good ground, the people of Spring Hill Church. Lord, you said yourself that the word is seed, and I believe that this seed is going to grow up and produce a harvest. And the harvest, Father, that we desire to see is a, a clear understanding, a clear revelation of who you are and the part that you desire to play in our lives. Father, I, I believe that there are many of us in this room that have experienced adversity, and because of that adversity, maybe we lost something. But Father, I thank you that you are a God of restoration. You're a God of rebuilding. That Lord, you will help us to recoup those losses. And that Father, you will equip us so that we'll be able to come out victorious when adversity shows up. Father, I thank you that Jesus said that in the world you'll have troubles. But he went on to say, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so, Lord, I thank you that no matter what we might face in this life, I thank you that you've already made a way of escape. You've already planned a great deliverance for us. And that, Father, you desire to cause us to win and triumph in every situation and in every circumstance. And we thank you for that. Lord, again, we're so grateful for all that Jesus has done for us. I thank you again for his shed blood. I thank you for his broken body. And, Lord, we receive everything that he provided for us. And Lord, we believe you have such good things in store for each and every family, each and every household, each and every family member. And Lord, we want to receive all of those things into our lives. Father, I believe for healing in every physical body right now in this room that needs healing. I thank you, Father, that the healing power of God is flowing in to every single body that's in need of it right now. Lord, I thank you that you said that in every sick room, every church, every place that we happen to be, there's more than enough of the power of God present to bring about healing, to undo sickness and disease, and to destroy the works of the devil. And Father, I thank you for it. We receive it right now. Father, I pray for that one that might need peace today. Lord, I thank you, Father, for the peace of God to rise up big on the inside of them, the peace that passes all understanding in Jesus' name. Lord, I ask you right now in the name of Jesus, this week, Lord, to use each and every one of us to minister hope and healing and, and the Lord Jesus, the Word of God, the gospel to someone, someone that's in need of it. And Father, I thank you for doing that. I thank you, Lord, for your anointing and your presence that is upon each and every one and that they are ministers, great ministers of God to carry forth your word and your will. And we believe you for it and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church Podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.